Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 291, and today's guest is Bobby Zekin, CEO and co-founder of WiseTac. When you have an idea to start a company that monopolizes your thinking, it's probably a good sign to take that leap of faith into the entrepreneurial waters. In the case of Bobby, he had wanted to start his own company for a long time, and he finally had that idea that he couldn't shake from his head. It was his years and years of experience in the fintech industry and trends around the buy now, pay later offerings that gave him the lens to discover a massive industry with big ticket purchase items that was underserved. The need was clear from both the business and consumer sides of the equation. So after recruiting two previous co-workers as co-founders of the company, it was go time and off to the races, which was a literal statement. As you'll hear from our interview, their business model focused on the integration and being the financing solution with third-party software platforms that specialize in their market, so time was of the essence. WiseTech is the leading pay-over-time platform for in-person services. The company partners with top SaaS service companies to embed payment options directly into their software through a simple API integration. Small service businesses rely on WiseTech to offer their customers flexible point-of-sale financing, enabling them to quickly and easily pay over time for essential services. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like advice for aspiring product managers on how to land a role in the profession and how to work your way up to an executive product leadership role, Bobby's career path from consulting to the world of product management, which originated at PayPal, the criteria he used to evaluate new career opportunities and his experience leading and scaling product at companies like Yapstone, Lending Club, and Mosaic, all the details on WiseTac and the company's business model, plus an example use case, advice for starting a fintech company for entrepreneurs, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at $0 a month. That's free. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Bobby. Bobby, thanks so much for joining us here. And thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because we've got a great, great conversation ahead. Uh, you're CEO and co-founder of WiseTac, which is a company that is doing some amazing work that we're going to get into the weeds about. But when I was looking at your background story, um, you came up through the product management ranks. And uh, the reason why that's super meaningful to this conversation is really two reasons. One, I just have an affinity towards product management because before starting VentureFizz, that is what I did. I was an executive recruiter helping great companies hire their first product manager or their head of product, chief product officer. And it was kind of my niche. It was a lot of fun. So I just have I've always appreciated that. But what I learned in along the way is the journey into a product management job is not linear. It's not like you graduate with a degree in that profession and then you start that out of college. You kind of come through different ways. The second reason why this is meaningful is VentureFizz just spun off a site called Just Product Management Jobs. So uh, there's a couple of reasons why I was excited to talk to you about your path. So 
like getting into the profession, what advice would you give to people that are interested in that product management job? Like I said, it's not a linear path of graduating from college with a degree in such matter. Well, uh, maybe you know this already, but uh, what I found is that successful product managers tend to have one of three backgrounds. They're either they either were technical, so former engineer or computer science undergrad doing technical things, uh, or they had a user experience design background, or they just had a general business background. And and that was that was my background right after college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I was a strategy consultant and did like 12 different projects doing all kinds of different things. Uh, and I was generally interested in business. And uh, during my first job in, in technology, which was PayPal uh, a long time ago, I ended up, I fell into a product job and I at the time didn't even know what, what product management was. Uh, but over time, I figured out, okay, well, those are the three backgrounds that can make someone successful in product, and there's different flavors of product. Uh, but for someone who wants to be really good and excel at the job, I would say try and get good at all three. So mm -hmm. if you can be technical, if you can have a great sense for user experience, if you can get smart about business uh, strategy, just financial decisions, uh, that's the uh, you know, proverbial CEO of the product. The product manager is the CEO of the product. Well, you need to have some general breadth, and and I think those are the three areas that would make someone a great product manager. And that I mean that does parlay into the the search work where I would ask the question: Does this need to be someone that's very technical? How about the user experience design element? What domain experience do they need? So it was all these different pieces that would tell me, okay, they want someone that did come up through, you know, probably coded at one point and have this experience and maybe consumer web or whatever the case may be. So that definitely was part of the upfront requirements gathering that I had to do before search. Okay. So once you're in a product management position, like how do you eventually work your way up into a VP or chief product officer role? I think the best advice is to be amazing at what you do. And my story was that I never set out to have the C title or VP title. I, I was interested in the work. I wanted to do an amazing job. I was curious about things. And I found that as long as I was in the kind of company that was doing well and was run by good people, opportunities open up when someone's doing an amazing job. And so if you're in the right place, just doing an amazing job will get you the uh, leadership opportunities. Um, so I would say having that desire to learn, the drive to succeed, the drive to excel. Um, and then once you get into the leadership job, it's it tends to be a different set of challenges because uh, you would have to go more into things like organizational design, all aspects of team building, conflict resolution, you know, things that maybe weren't as big of a part of the functional job. So the leadership part is a different job, but you have to be good at the other part to get there. It was That was my trajectory and my experience. And how has that experience as a product manager shaped you as an entrepreneur? Like how did that, you know, end up helping you start a company? It's been essential for us. We're a very product-driven company. We our distribution is through technology. Our actual operations are not people-driven. They're technology-driven. So I found everything we did 
and and we've done uh, pretty well pretty quickly. I think it was essential for me to have that experience, and and it was in also in related uh, fields to what we do. So I found it essential. It also depends on the business model. Our business model is such that it lends to it lends to a product background very much. All right. Well, we kind of gave a glimpse of your background story already, but I do want to do a deeper dive. So let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I I grew up in Bulgaria, uh, which was uh, for the first 12 years of my life. Uh, I was a communist country and uh, I finished high school there in, in what at the time was a country that was struggling with, with a political and economic transition. Um what I ended up doing uh, a lot of as a kid was actually just being outdoors and playing a lot of sports and and reading. And a big reason for that was we didn't have any we didn't have any other options. We uh, our family and the people around us and and our friends, uh, as was the case for for many folks in communist countries, we didn't have much. No computers, video games, TV wasn't good. Uh, so ended up. Uh, doing things that actually find they're probably uh, fun fun basics for kids these days anyway. What brought you to the, the U.S.? Um, so after the fall of communism, we a few of us started to hear that there was a way to apply to uh, study abroad. And uh, we had never heard of the internet. So it was, uh, we, we found a hard copy of the U.S. News and World Report and looked at the listings of colleges and universities and which, which is what I had to do when I was applying to colleges to date myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like we're in the same bucket and uh, you know, so then, you know, you got the hard copy applications. We use the mechanical typewriter with your two index fingers to, to write the applications. And, and there were a few colleges that took a chance on a kid from Bulgaria. And so ended up getting a scholarship, which allowed me to uh, afford coming to the U.S. And and that's how it started. And I've been in the U.S. since. Awesome. So then you, so you highlighted before you were a strategy consultant at Bain. Was there an industry focus there? Like, No. So I ended up working on all kinds of things from RVs, a company that did RVs and and mobile homes to uh, several technology companies. Um, So it was all, it was all over the place. Yeah. I, I, over the span of two years worked on 12 different cases and across the board, totally different things. And why did you decide to go back to B school? I very quickly realized that uh, strategy consulting is too theoretical for me. Uh, even from the, even at that point, I said, "Okay, I want to do I want to do something else." Business school was a great transition, and then while I was in business school, I actually uh, ended up getting a summer internship at PayPal. Back when PayPal was a much smaller company, it was uh, fairly. How many employees did they have? I was curious about that. Well, it was, I think at the time it was about a thousand people, but a lot of them mm-hmm. were in operational roles. So the the business side of things, probably a few hundred people uh, when I joined and ended up uh, working part-time through business school at PayPal and then stayed for another six years post-business school. And and when I left, the company was over 10,000 people. And we already highlighted you that was kind of your segue into product management. So what did you start out doing? And then how did that transition happen and what different products were you working on? I started out working on the international business. 
So launching different countries, launching products in, in different countries, looking at pricing and, and how do we set up the international business. And that was a big uh, driver of the PayPal growth was cross-border uh, payments. And just through function of company growing a lot and having different needs, I shifted. I went and worked on the U.S. business and then uh, through organization changing and kind of where where did we need people focused on uh, started doing product on both the U.S. side and international side. So it was completely organic based on how things were changing. And and I, I think it's a great example of the uh if you if you find a good horse ride it for a while so stayed there because things were changing was always doing different things and uh you know had a lot of personal growth there because this was during their hyper growth years like were they still you know part of ebay or had they spun out to go public yet or what was that phase of paypal yeah so it was it was after they went public um during the the dot-com bust were pretty quickly purchased by eBay and I joined right, right after that, but it, but it very much ran okay. independently, had its own executive team and, and president. And so uh, it was going through hyper growth uh, as a, as a business model by itself. Got it. Okay. So what'd you do after PayPal? I ended up uh, heading product at another online payments company called Yapstone. And then after that was head of product at uh, Lending Club, which is online lending and uh, and a company called Mosaic, which uh, finances solar panels uh, for for consumers. But do you think the PayPal experience, like, because that, I assume as a group product manager, you were dealing with something of significance, meaning scale, right? Because at Yapstone and Lending Club, these were businesses that, you know, were not startups. It was, you know, according to LinkedIn, it was a hundred million or Lending Club, 500 million in revenue. You know, these were things that you were of scale. They, interesting, they grew into that scale. So all three of those companies that I joined as head of product were a series B company with just over a hundred people at the time that I joined. Wow, uh, which happens to be where Ystack is today. Uh, so I've I've come back to my sweet spot. It looks like, um, yeah. So it just by chance it turned out I joined three different companies at roughly the same stage, and they've all been pretty successful. Lending Club went public while I was there within a couple of years. So have uh, I've seen quite a bit of scaling from from uh, the Series B stage onwards. So what advice would you have for entrepreneurs or product people that are, you know, leading product or in a, you know, a PM role, like what were some of the key elements that helped you achieve that scaling success at Yapstone or Lending Club? Like I know each one has its own unique set of circumstances, but, you know, just generally speaking. Well, what helped was they all, all of these places, when I joined, I actually brought a bunch of relevant experience. And uh, when I went to Yapstone, the question in my mind was, well, will I be relevant to the company of 100 people? Because I came, and, you know, at the time, again, I was leaving a company that was over 10,000 people, had a lot of other folks around me. We were always, we were always a big team launching big things. And so now you're going to a totally different scale, leadership position. Um, and my focus was always, how do I create the most business value? And if I can do that, then uh, things will work out. And uh, it was, it was, Yapstone was great. 
kind of showed me, okay, I can do this at a smaller scale. Uh, when I went to Lending Club, um, that was a fascinating business. And again, a, kind of an incredible trajectory as the company really grew. And it was a, as a new business model in terms of the fractional lending. Uh, so I think my advice would be to make sure, if, you know, if folks are going into these roles, they need to make sure they can they can add value by actually having the experience and the focus to to get results. And that's, that's what's worked for me versus uh, focus on anything else like, you know, personal trajectory. One of the other things that is, uh, I think, helpful to, for people to understand is like, you had this successful, um, you know, choice where, yes, you had to go in, execute, there was a team, there was funding, there was all these elements that came together to help it scale. But you still had to evaluate the opportunity before you chose to join either of those companies. Like, what criteria would you use to make those decisions? Because you obviously, again, executed, but made good decisions to even get the opportunity to execute. Yeah, number one for me was always, is this a good company? And it's it's two things. Is it a good business in general? And is this company within that, like, is it a big market, big opportunity? And is this company doing well and doing a good job? Those two are always highest on my list. And I, and I would give that advice to anyone. If they are considering making a career move, I would put that at the top because if the company is doing well and it's a big market, then... Uh, you know, inside the company, things will go a lot better for everybody there. Um, and then secondary to that was, well, what's the role? Does it make sense? Uh, and obviously I had a big focus on if I'm going to join, I should be able to drive results in a senior role. Uh, so those were those are the two things I really looked at. All right. So fast forward to what you're up to today with WiseTac. So what led you down the path of starting your own company and how did like the founding team together as far as your co-founders? Yeah, I'd been talking about starting a company for at least 10 years before, but I, one, never, never felt like I had some uh, compelling idea. Um, and I always found myself with other interesting opportunities. So I finally, uh, finally found myself in a spot where I had some interesting ideas and Westag was one of them. And I was also in the mind space of, I can't think of anything else that is more interesting than doing this right now. Um, and then I started talking to everyone I knew about uh, about what I was thinking about, and a few of the a few of those folks said, "Hey, this sounds really interesting. I want to join." So I uh, was talking to Colia, who's our CTO, and I, I knew Colia from uh, Lending Club. Both of, both of us are on the management team there. Uh, so he said, "Well, this is interesting." And I knew Liz, who's our COO uh, from PayPal, actually from a long time ago at PayPal and similar story. We're just having a conversation about uh, some of these ideas. And, and that's how it started to take shape by having folks believe that it is an opportunity uh, that's worthwhile to pursue. Um, and, it, and it got going. How close was your idea to like what it is today? Surprisingly, based on the general statistics. And for us, it is exactly what we said we would do. It is, if you take the seed round pitch deck, we did every single thing we said we wanted to do and it turned out better. So it was one of those rare cases where you have a plan and you don't have to change the plan. Uh, so that was a surprise even, even to me because I, I thought we'd have to change something. Well, yes, but 
the reason why I asked that question is I had a hunch. I'm like, I bet you, because when you when investors look at a team and say, why is this team uniquely qualified to solve this problem now in a big market? I look at your founding team and I'm like, okay, <laughs> it just, it makes a world of sense why you guys are doing what you're doing and why it's going well. Uh, you guys had so much industry expertise and a lot of product knowledge and uh, business development. And so anyways, I'm like, okay, I see why WiseTech is doing so well. Yeah, we definitely have the experience both with what's the problem we're solving? Is this a real problem? Is it a market? And also we have the experience of, well, how do you build it and making sure that it's going to work? And so we didn't think it was a huge leap. And and that is also how we funded the company because we said this is a big opportunity. It doesn't, and also the kind of business that it doesn't make sense to bootstrap. So we said, okay, let's go raise a little bit of money. And it's only worthwhile to do if we can raise the money. And so then Greylock let our seed because they also believe in the exact thing that you mentioned and it and it worked. And you actually you were able to like co-locate at Greylock too, from what I gathered, like almost like they were incubating a little bit. So what was the benefits of being housed in a VC firm while you're in the really infancy stages of building something? Yeah, it was great. It was great. I mean, it's it's uh early stages, it is a lonely experience, right? You have very few people working. And so it's nice to be around other people in a very nice office. And Greylock, Greylock was fantastic. And our, our partner there, Josh, is an entrepreneur himself. He started a company and sold it to Twitter. And so he uh, had the wisdom to, to kind of leave us alone to sort of do our thing. And, you know, we'd check in as if it's almost as if we weren't in the office. So we would check in periodically, but we 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 operated independently and just had the benefit of being around people. And then we needed anything we could just say, hey, I need some help with something, but uh, it's kind of the best of uh, both worlds. Our audience is probably wondering right now, well, okay, what is this amazing idea? What are they doing? So what is WiseTac? We're a financial technology company and at its most basic, we let consumers pay in installments for a large purchase. And where we differentiate from, from some other companies that do something similar is we're an API so we embed that installment payment experience into any user experience and any software. So we make it really easy for developers to integrate installment payments. And we also make it really easy for small businesses, especially to sign up, offer these payment plans to their consumers. Um, and another angle we have, which is differentiating, is we do this really well for, for offline businesses, which is businesses who don't sell on an e-commerce website. So we work with a lot of Plumbers, electricians, HVAC businesses. We work. We we work with car repair businesses. We work with dental offices and veterinary offices. So we've created this installment payment experience that is integrated into the software that all of these service businesses use. Um, and that way, we can reach uh, many of these small businesses at a scale that we we uh, would have been hard for us to create otherwise. So as I was learning about your business, it brought me back a few years ago where I had to replace my heating and air conditioning unit, which was not a pretty thing to do. It's one of those things that you need for your house. Uh, it's a necessity. But when you get faced with the price tag of the equipment and installation, you're like, how much? <laughs> so tell, yeah. tell me about the consumer experience of how this works with your company. Uh, yeah, your use case is a top use case for us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the way it works is uh, we we would have integrated with the software that, let's say, the HVAC business that did the work. 
uh, would be using. So for you, the customer, what would happen is when the technician comes to your house and inspects what they need to do, they usually will send an estimate that says it's going to cost you $4,000 or whatever it is. And, and on that estimate, it will say, or for example, $200 with Ystack for three years. And so we're integrated into the experience. We're integrated into the estimates, invoices, quoting tools, mobile apps uh, for the business. Um, and it makes it really easy for the business, their employees, and it makes it e really easy for you, the consumer. And one of the, one of the top ways that um, this plays out is the consumer, because you can spread out your payments, you can now afford, in that example, a more energy efficient unit, which lowers your energy costs. So in a way, it, the better unit pays for itself uh, in terms of the upgrade. And uh, that's why businesses offer this option. And it, typically, these things are a surprise to the consumer. So um, uh, their other option, most common one, would have been to revolve it on a credit card, which is really expensive. So it's a win-win went for the business, went for the consumer. Right. So if you're financing this, you're going to get a lower interest rate than what a typical credit card would be. Substantially. Charging. Yeah. Substantially lower. And it's a, it, and it's uh simple interest versus compound. That's right. Yeah. We're, we're very customer friendly. We also have no late fees in case someone misses a payment. So uh, super transparent, um, customer friendly, the consumer knows exactly what their monthly payment is. There's no surprises. Uh, whereas with your credit card, you put it on there and you have no idea how much it's actually going to cost you an in interest until the bills arrive, you know, every month. So was it like, what kind of was your aha moment of like, oh, this is a huge opportunity with these service providers? Because these are all big ticket items. Usually when you're dealing with HVAC or, um, you know, any service, auto repair, you know, elective medical, dental, vet, like all these areas, it's usually not a a cheap bill. It's usually an expensive one. Yet as consumers, we've become aware of the Affirms, the Klarna's, you know, Apple just announced buy now, pay later type of things. So it's something that consumers are starting to understand more and more of. Like what was your aha, aha moment to do this in the industry that you're catering towards? Yeah, you almost told the story of, of, of how it came together. So, so for us, the average transaction is over $4,500. Whereas when you think about the online options that you mentioned, the average transaction there is uh, between a hundred and usually six, $700 that consumers are splitting in installments uh, on website purchases. And so the adoption of BNPL uh, online is just an indication of how much consumer need there is. So if consumers are splitting a $200 purchase in installment payments, well, clearly the need is even bigger for larger items. And um, all the BNPL options, they're, they work really well for an e-commerce checkout. They don't work so well when I'm not checking out with a shopping basket online. And so we knew the need. It turns out all of these... Uh, services uh industries that i mentioned you combine the consumer spend there's more consumer spending there than all of e-commerce so bigger market bigger tickets more need clearly consumer uh preference is shifting away from cards towards installment payments because they're more customer friendly and so it was it was a completely clear market opportunity and we thought we knew how to build it and then we the thing that really made the business take off is realizing there's a there's a brand new channel with these software providers that in themselves, the integrations we do with software providers 
Um, that's a really differentiating part. And those software providers weren't even around 15 years ago. So, so the opportunity didn't exist at the scale that it makes sense for us to pursue until maybe five years ago when they when when the SaaS providers had grown to sizable scale. And now we're meeting the need of a new channel. We're also uh, able to grow at scale in a, in a massive market. And that's what made it interesting. Yeah, so you actually just answered part of a question I was going to ask. Like, how did you even get started with that integration partner approach of House Call Pro and Jobber and these other uh, platforms that are catering towards service-based businesses? Like, was this something that they were like, as you approach them, they're like, absolutely, like this is a no-brainer. Like, we've been wanting this type of thing. Exactly. That's how it took off because the the need was clear from the business side. The need was clear on the consumer side. And we said, okay, there should be this interesting channel. Let's go and test it. And the way the testing went was I called a bunch of people I knew who were executives at these companies. And I, and I had, we had designed the product. We said, we're launching this product. Is this something you would need? And, and I had a number of conversations that all went exactly the same way, which was, we have been looking for this. We have talked to everybody. Nobody can do this well. When are you launching? And how can I help you launch faster? And when I when I got a bunch of these in a row, we put the testimonials in the in the pitch deck, and and that's what helped us raise the seed round. So how do you go about getting consumer? Like, so if I, if I'm again going back to my heating air conditioning unit, that would be one of my options. So your sales and your go to market sales distribution is through integration to the software, and then that service providers presenting that as an option and me as a consumer purchasing that. So that, that that's exactly right. Yeah. Our focus yeah. is on the business development and on the integrations. Right. And then the product is easy enough that it's self-serve. It's self-serve for the business and self-serve for the consumer. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you talked about, you raised the seed rounds, uh, then you raised in a $15 million, if my crunch base numbers are right, $4 million seed round in 2019, and then quickly a $15 million Series A round shortly thereafter, and then a $45 million Series B. Uh, so bring us up to speed on where the business is today, like anything you can share. Yeah, the business is very much in that growth stage. We are still growing really fast, uh, sizable scale. We are uh, about 130 people, and we have definitely reached that point where um, because we're in a massive market, we're continuing to grow at a fast pace, but we also have sizable scale. And so um, it's, a, it's a pretty exciting place to be because there's no, there's no question, is there a product market fit? Is there a huge opportunity? Are customers happy? All of those questions have been answered many times over. And as you've scaled and grown, like what's um, like, What's it like working at WiseTac? Like, what's the culture like? Like the employee experience side of things. Yeah, there's a few things. Uh, one that we were we've been very focused on from the very beginning is customer focus. So we do a few things, um, like we overstaff our customer service so that we always pick up the phone quickly if someone's calling. So I think many other companies try and save cost and hide the phone number. Uh, we don't. We we want people to call us. We want the feedback. We want to know how things are going. And and, and I know customers really appreciate having someone I, pick up within a few rings. That is refreshing to hear. Because <laughs> digging for the phone number and trying to Google it and getting the wrong number and just not being able to talk to a live person is so frustrating. Yeah, and and so it really. I think it's one of the really salient examples of how we operate. So we have said we we want to be customer focused. We want customers to love us. 
And we also, so we have a really high net promoter score. It's around 80 and it has been that way from very early on. And every single uh, net promoter score survey gets posted in real time in a Slack channel. So you see the score and you see the feedback that customers provide. And so we're always reading the feedback, at least from the surveys, we're always talking to customers. We're always picking up the phone when they call, and it and it really shows because we, we a lot of the NPS responses also reference our our service and say, well, I had a question and I, it was instantly answered in a great way. So it all it all comes together. We are a technology company. We are technology driven. We are growing like a technology company, but we also want the people part to be there when we're serving customers. All right. So uh, even though you had all this great industry experience and this great idea for a company and product. This is the first time that you've built a company from scratch. So what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned around building you know, a company from its idea to where you are today? There's quite a few. I would say it also really depends on the, the situation of the business and, and the founders and the employees. But for me, what I learned was uh, in no particular order, you will get all sorts of conflicting advice and it's all true but probably for different situations, different people. And you sort of have to decide for my business or myself or my values, like which advice should I follow? But, but um, which is why I don't think there's any general set of advice. Uh, th there are a few things that are obviously really important. Like you have to move really fast. That is your only true advantage. Uh, and you, I think you have to be really customer focused um, as you're, as you're building your business. Um I would also say it is uh, it is lonely and difficult, and that's coming from someone who, you know, for us things worked really well early on, and I can't even imagine if it was much more difficult and we we're struggling with product market fit and we we're low on cash. Like, what would that even feel like? So it is difficult. It is lonely. It really matters who you are working with. So pick your partners and co-founders and early employees carefully. Um, but, but I think that's probably things that are fairly well known. Uh, well, when you so, said move but, move fast, right? Move fast. Like that could mean a lot of different things. But for you, one of the move fast things would be probably like the integration partners, right? Because once you're integrated, it's hard to remove you as an option or even duplicate you. Because like, why would you add a secondary partner that's already providing financing? I think that's right. Yeah, that, that's a key part for us. And in general, it would be move fast on the things that you really need to understand and de-risk. Uh, and I and I once heard the saying of, okay, if, if you're going to build a statue of a talking dog, uh, you don't build the pedestal first, because obviously you can do that. You build the part that is hard. You're not sure is this going to work. And, and if you focus on the important things that have uncertainty and you move fast to understand how that's going to work, that is a true advantage for a small company that's early stage. Typically, uh, fintech companies are capital intensive. Um, so, so what advice would you have for founders that are interested in building a, a fintech company? It's it's usually regulated. You know, there's different layers versus building some photo sharing app. Uh, that is a great point. I would say... For someone to start a fintech business, they need some experience in fintech for a few reasons. One is uh, neither customers nor regulators have a lot of tolerance for mistakes when you're dealing with people's money. Um, and so 
you know, the, the statistics on startup success are already not in the startup's favor. So for fintech, it would be even worse if someone doesn't have the experience uh, with these types of products and, and regulations. And yes, it, it is capital intensive, especially for our business model. Uh, thankfully, because the team had experience, because we had a really good business plan, and because we frankly were growing the company at a time when capital was plentiful, we were able to establish the foundation of the business uh, while having plenty of capital. And that is really paying off these days. And these days we're at scale. We have a lot of data. So that's uh, proven out all the things that we needed to prove out. But but I would say it, it is harder. It is also the outcomes are also bigger and the opportunities are bigger. So it, it is probably more risk, more reward, especially early stages. So the 130 or somewhat employees, what functional area did you find to be the most challenging to hire for? There's a couple of things I would say are are higher consequence. One is early employees. In general, as a percentage of your employee base, uh, each person is a much higher percentage early on. So early on is way harder to hire. And also people are tend to be signing on more to the dream. There's less to point to in terms of results. So they have to believe in the story. So that's harder. And the other thing that's harder to hire is more senior people because the uh, expectations are higher. There's more they need to do and the consequences to getting it wrong are also higher. So I'd say those two are the hardest to hire. All right, what are three apps you can't live without? I have been really enjoying an app called Waking Up, uh, which is uh, by Sam Harris. He's a neuroscientist and, and meditator. So it is a science-based, uh, if I could say, a meditation app where it, not only is there the practice of meditation, but also how does how does your brain function? Why does why do certain things work that way? So uh, that's been great. And then uh, I have. Uh, two audiobook apps that I use every day. One's Libby, which is you can get, you can borrow audiobooks from the public library and uh, also Audible. Uh, I do have an Audible subscription and listen to quite a few audiobooks. I'm all about Audible. And like, it's been around for a gazillion years, but I feel like I finally discovered it like like a year ago or something. And I'm like, and I, it, nothing's better when like the the author narrates it too. It's just like, it's a totally different experience when they do that. Those are really good. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. How about a good uh, podcast or book recommendation since you are listening to lots of books or checking out podcasts? A few books I read recently that I really enjoyed. Um, one One's uh, Thanks for the Feedback. So this is a book about how do you internalize feedback better how do you also deliver feedback it's it sounds kind of boring but it is actually a fascinating book that gives examples it's not just about work it's about family kids uh parents just how do you how do you interact with people in difficult situations and it's truly wonderful uh and and, and yeah i found it a fascinating read uh i also recently uh read uh, alexander hamilton which is uh, very big book, but I also found that fascinating. Um, I, uh, I also discovered uh, there's a comedy author called Simon Rich, and he's got a few short story books of short stories that I thought were hilarious. I would highly recommend those. All right. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? 
Well, um, yeah, a, a few things. We, we, my wife and I do a lot of backcountry snowboarding. We also um, recently that's been replaced by our new passion is wing foiling, which is uh, it's a, it's like a surfboard and you have a hydrofoil on it and you're holding on to a sail. So you're propelled by the wind and you ride around, you can ride waves, you can ride on a lake. Um, it is a, that sounds uh, cool. It is a really cool experience. You do need wind and you need to be close to water. Uh, but if, if you have that, I highly recommend it. And, uh, and another thing uh, that's filling up a lot of my time is a ton of fun is uh, we have a seven month old baby and <laughs> he is, he is a lot of fun. That is awesome. Well, Bobby, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Uh, obviously the great work you and your team at WiseTech are doing, and obviously all the great advice shared along the way. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.